Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. But the free gift is not like the offense For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many, and and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification." For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded... Grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a lot of information, and it's going to be very, very difficult for me to make sense of it. But let me try to be as simple as possible, particularly for the person who says, I don't understand you, Gino. Let's do something so simple that each and every one of us should be able to repeat it. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men Couldn't put Humpty back together again. You all know that. Paul is going to be presenting a reality that Adam has fallen and has shattered. And not anything is going to be able to put him back together except for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how this passage is different from the nursery rhyme that you've learned. In chapter 5, Paul speaks of the blessings of justification in verses 1 through 11. The basis of justification in verses 12 through 21. And if the blessings of justification were 
peace with God in verse 1. Access to God in verse 2. The hope and the glory of God at the end of verse 2. Daily confidence as we grow and mature in verses 3 and 4. We experience the love of God in verses 5 through 11. So what about the basis of justification? How is it that all human beings are sinners? And how is it possible that one man's death could save the ungodly of all people in all places at all times? How is it possible? How is it possible that we can be put back together again? How is it possible that we can have a right standing before God? And so Paul is going to not just introduce, but exalt the power of grace. We're all aware of the power of sin, and we're all aware of the power of death. We've all experienced sin. And if you've lived for any length of time, some of you have experienced death, whether it was the the death of a pet or the death of a loved one. You live in a broken world. You know that that world is broken. You've experienced the brokenness of the world. And many of us are intimidated by the power of sin. And we're terrified by the certainty of death. And so Paul wants us to rejoice in our salvation. And appropriate the power of grace so that we can live in victory and righteousness. And so Paul is going to contrast two people and two works. The work of Adam and the work of Jesus. Paul will then contrast two powerful forces and their influence. Adam and the reign of sin and death. And Jesus And the reign of righteousness and life. There's lots of questions that we're going to be asking. And there's lots of answers that we hope to provide. But the overarching question that I want you to be able to ask yourself throughout this morning's message is this. Am I in Adam or am I in Christ? You see, only you know the answer to that question. The truth is, everyone is born into Adam. But for those who are born again, they enter into relationship and fellowship. And they can rightly say that they are in Christ. And so we begin with one man's sin. Look at verse 12. We're going to go quickly. Therefore... Just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. And this death spread to all men because all died. I have a note in my Bible. The first sin wrought moral ruin of the race. And so the therefore in verse 12 relates back to chapter 3 verses 19 through 23. Where he has been talking about that discussion about the universality of sin. So he's been talking about sin, and from chapter 3, verse 19, um, chapter 3, verses 19 through 23, from verse 24 all the way to chapter 5, verse 11, it's been just like a gigantic parenthesis. And now Paul is going to pick up the discussion again of the issue of sin. 
And note Paul's use of the phrase one. From verse 12 to the end of the chapter, one appears 11 times. See if you can find them as we go through our study. Through one man's sin entered the world, verse 12. I'll give you a hint. One's offense, verse 15a. The one man Jesus, verse 15b. The one who sinned, verse 16. And then you can count them as we, as we come to them. When Adam sinned, sin entered and infected the whole human race. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the presence of sin and the brokenness in the world is because of the transgression of Adam. Chronologically, Eve sinned first. Theologically, Adam is the first sinner. Adam was the head of the human race. We know the story by heart. Instructions have been given. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve break God's commandment. Adam attempts to hide his nakedness from God. Adam introduces death in Genesis 2.17. Nakedness in Genesis 3.17. A curse in Genesis 3.14. Sorrow in Genesis 3.17. Thorns in 3.18. Sweat in 3.19. A sword in chapter 3 verse 24. Human beings are alienated and distanced from God. Jesus deals with death in Hebrews 2.9, deals with nakedness in John 19.23, deals with the curse in Galatians 3.13, deals with sorrow in Isaiah 53.3, deals with the thorns in John 19.5 by wearing a crown of thorns himself, will deal with the sweat in Luke 22 verse 44, and the sword in John 19.34. Here becomes part of the point as Paul paints a picture of everything that that was lost in Adam is now found in Jesus. Everything that he lost, Jesus finds and deals with. The death of Adam is both spiritual and physical. So what happened when Adam sinned? He brought sin and death into the world. So why did he do it? We know the answer. It's disobedience. What was the result? Condemnation. Immediate judgment on himself and Eve. And then imputed judgment on his children. And their children. And their children. And their children's children. Until your mom and dad were born. Who were perfect. No, that's not how the story goes. And you go, wait, you don't know my mom and dad. I kind of do. If your mother and father were like my, my mother and father... I remember talking to my dad about my interest in organized crime. And my dad said, well, what part of the government do you want to join? (laughs) Yeah, my dad was a skeptic. Maybe like some of your parents. You see, sin has wormed its way into our family and into our life. 
So Paul is teaching a unity, a singularity in our human race and in our human experience. And I need you to understand something. And I'm going to try hard to help you understand. Paul isn't simply teaching that in Adam all die, although he is teaching that. Paul is teaching that all people were in Adam, sinning. You see, what Paul is in effect teaching is if you go back to your parents and their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents, Paul is bringing up the reality that in Adam we are all human. In Adam, Adam is our father. He is your father and my father. We are all related. We are all brothers and sisters in Adam. And in Adam, in a very real way, each and every human who would ever be on the planet Earth was in Adam, rebelling and disobeying. And you might think, well, if I was in the garden, I would never have fallen. And you go, I just can't even begin to tell you how wrong you are. Do you seriously think that you would have been the first perfect person and you would have maintained that perfection? what, What Paul is arguing is we are identified with Adam and we are in Adam. He is the head of the human race. His sin is our sin. His rebellion is our rebellion. The consequences of his sin is the consequences for us. And so he says in verse 13, For until the law was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. I want you to think about this for just a moment. For until the law, sin was in the world. In what way? The consequences of sin. In what way? Human beings died in each and every generation prior to the coming of Moses. Prior to the revelation of the law. Here's in effect what he's saying. Sin existed as a fact before it existed as a guilt. Sin existed as a fact before it existed as a guilt. Sin existed in your life as a fact before it existed as a guilt. Let me help you understand that. Are little kids aware that they're little tyrants. <laughs> when a child is in the crib, grasping the crib, and screaming at the top of his or her lungs, and looking at you, and if that child, instead of being less than three feet tall, was about six foot six and about 260, what would they do to you in that crib? <laughs> they would tear you to pieces. They have no idea that they're little monsters. And so, in what way was the sin in the world? Paul argues that everyone knows that the soul that sins it shall surely die. And the evidence of sin in the world is the evidence that death is in the world. He says, but there was no law. The law of Moses didn't exist. Yet human beings died. And if there is no law, it says, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. How can you impute sin if you have no idea that you've transgressed the law or that you've done something wrong? Let me put it to you simply. If you don't know it's wrong to walk on the grass, if you don't know it's wrong to touch 
paint, if you don't know it's wrong to smoke marijuana, and then you have a law that says, don't smoke marijuana, and you go, oh, it's wrong. And then you have a new law. Smoke all you want. (laughs) Dude, it's not, it's no longer illegal. And so we get confused with the presence or the absence of the law. And the presence or the absence of guilt. So Paul asks the question, how then and how, why is it then that human beings die? And Paul argues that death must be from another cause. A different cause. And that that cause is Adam's sin because we're born in Adam. We inherit his sin and condemnation. And so the next few verses are teaching at least three things. Number one, death is reigning. For until the law of sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed. Nevertheless, death reigned. Look what it says in verse 14. From Adam to Moses, the word reigned will appear in verse 14. It will appear in verse 17. It will appear in verse 21. All of you know what that word means. It's where something has authority, sovereignty, the ability to exercise its will or its desire. In verse 14, death reigns. In verse 17, righteousness reigns. In verse 21, grace reigns. And so Paul argues, death is king. From Adam to Moses. And then Paul points this out to prove that the presence of death means the presence of sin. And for the person who wants to argue, there's no such thing as sin. Paul says, how could you be so stupid? How then do you explain the presence of of death? And the philosophical naturalist, the scientist says, death exists because of the second law of thermodynamics and entropy. You see, everything that has coherence will eventually break down. There are people, maybe you even grew up with these people, and maybe you used to be one of these people. Why is there death in the world? Well, it's natural. Things live. And things die. But why do they die? Because everything that's alive has to eventually die. No, no, I I need to know why things die. Because there are those people who think that death is normal. But the Bible teaches that death is not normal. It's something horrible and terrible. It's something that was never supposed to be a part of our life and a part of our world. But it is a part of our life and it is a part of our world. So Paul, Adam, Paul argues concerning Adam that death is reigning and that sin is personal. Again, look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. In other words, in exactly the same way, Did Adam's children sin in exactly the same way as Adam? Well, no. When Cain killed his brother Abel, did the Ten Commandments existed? No, they didn't. Was there a law posted somewhere near the garden that said, Thou shalt not kill? No. Did 
Cain know that there was something wrong and something wicked and something awful and something evil when he killed his brother? I think that the answer is yes. So even though Adam's children didn't sin in exactly the same way that Adam sinned, people sinned. And he says, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. The word type is the Greek word tupos. It's a word that was used to describe when you would engrave a coin and you would make a blank. And then you would stamp the coin on the blank and an image would appear. Just like you know about typeset. There's a typeset and you, and you put it on a piece of paper and an image appears. Adam becomes a type and a picture of him who was to come. Who? Jesus. Death is reigning. Sin is personal. Death comes to those who have not sinned in exactly the same way as Adam. Paul argues that many people died who had not broken any formal command. Adam broke God's word. After Moses, the command of the law was given. In Adam's day, there were no commands to break. Yet Adam's children were sinners. They were sinners in their own right and according to their own nature. And so Paul argues that they were sinners because their father was a sinner. And then they were sinners... Not just simply by nature, but by choice. And this makes sin personal. Death reigned. Sin is personal. Christ is coming. Who is a type of him who was to come. The cause of sin, Adam. The cure for sin, Christ. We discover the predicament of sin and the recovery from sin. It can't be left to chance. It can't be left to whim. It can't be left to fate. Human beings on their own are not going to be able to deal with this fundamental problem that has broken our heart and our circumstance and our life. And so God plans a rescue. You see, salvation isn't just simply something you discover. Salvation is a revelation. And the Bible is is a revelation that God is willing to save you. He's willing to forgive you. He's willing to give you grace and mercy because Jesus is coming. And so in grace and mercy, God has given us another father, another Adam. Adam is a type of him who is to come. Adam is the first man and the head of the human race. Paul presents Jesus as the last Adam, the final man, the new head of a new human race. Adam has physical progeny, real human beings who are born as a result of his real existence on the planet Earth. And by the way, there are people who will tell you, there was no real Adam. Everybody, are you crazy? Everybody knows we descended from apes. Everybody knows that there was a series of circumstances which took place that created the proliferation of life and that Lower forms became more complex forms, and those more complex forms eventually became human beings. And this is nonsense. This is a myth. This is a magical statement that people make up in order to explain their circumstances. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, 
There are people who believe that. That's what they believe. That you're the product of chance and evolution. And that sin is a fiction. And if sin is in fact a fiction, then so is salvation. But the Bible suggests something so totally different. And i got to be honest with you. There was a time in my life where that's exactly what I believed. And you know what turned me around? Something troubling. Something amazing. A real person, Jesus, comes into our world. He enters space and time. He says he comes from God. He lives a perfect life. He dies on a cross. He rises from the dead in a miraculous, supernatural, historical revelation and resurrection. He comes back to life. And if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus lived and died and came back to life, then I'm pretty certain that I would be among those people who says, there doesn't seem to be any good evidence uh, of anything other than what the scientists are telling us. Until you begin to examine the evidence and you discover that you're part of a special creation and that like begets like and it's almost impossible for us to understand... That if evolution were true, then why wouldn't there be some evidence to support it? And there is no evidence, but now I'm off track. Now we get back on track. As we get back on track, our real head is the last Adam, Jesus. What did Adam do? He sinned and brought sin upon the whole human race. And here's Paul's argument. If Adam could drag the whole human race into sin... Paul argues that Jesus Christ as our representative can drag us all back into a right relationship with God in Christ. That's part of the point that he's making. T.A. Hegre writes, As Jesus Christ hung on the cross of Calvary, he died not only for us as our substitute, but as us, as our representative. He was united with the human race and became. He was united with the human race. And when he hung on the cross, we hung with him. When he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. As far as God is concerned, the sinful human race was crucified, dead, and buried at Calvary. We were buried, therefore, with him through baptism unto death. That's going to be in chapter 6, verse 4. Again, T.A. Hegre adds this interesting insight. He says, if Pilate had cared to write an inscription on the stone door of the sepulcher, he would have written, here lies Jesus, king of the Jews. If the religious leaders, the scribes and the fairies had, had written an epitaph, they would have written, here lies the imposter who claimed that he was the son of God. If Satan would have written the inscription, he would have written, Jesus of Nazareth, whom I have overcome. But if God wrote the inscription, it would have read, Here lies the sinful human race. you all know the story, don't you? Is the door going to remain closed? Is its occupant going to come back to life? 
In the passage, Paul points out three people whose acts have influenced the world. Adam, Moses, and Christ. How has Adam influenced all mankind? Just as through one man entered the world sin and death through sin, verse 12. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. How has Moses influenced all mankind? Look what it says in verse 14. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Why? Verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. How has Moses influenced humanity? Because humanity, with the presence of the law, begin to understand something. That they're lawbreakers. The presence of the law communicates the fact that we've broken the law. How has Jesus influenced mankind? Verse 15, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. How has he influenced humanity? Sin can be forgiven. Grace can be applied. Death isn't the final word. Resurrection becomes the final word. Again, Harold J. Brokey in his book, A Guide to Understanding Romans, writes, Each person comes to an age when he can choose, in the light of reason and conscience, what influence is going to dominate his life. Then he's personally responsible for his spiritual condition. Those who have never heard the gospel proclamation will be judged by Moses' law. Those who have never heard the law will be judged according to their conscience, unquote. I want you to think about this for just a moment. The invitation then becomes who is influencing you? Are you informed by Adam? Are you informed by Moses? Are you informed by Jesus? The song. For every sin God gave the lamb. For every sigh God has a psalm. For every sore God brings a balm. For every storm God sends a calm. And so the one man's gift. Let's go quickly. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died. Much more the grace of God. And the gift By the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ abounded to many. How many people experienced the consequences of Adam's fall? All people. How many people have the opportunity to experience the gift and the grace? All people. That's the scope. In Adam it says, and because of Adam, many died. I want you to think for just a moment. Adam brings sin into the world from a garden, condemns the world to death, and now Jesus comes into the world and brings about the possibility of life. It says, but in Jesus, grace abounded much more. Look in verse 15 again. Abounded to many. 
in verse 9. Abounded, verse 10. Abounded, verse 15. Abounded, verse 17. Abounded, verse 20. Are you beginning to think that this is about abounding? Well, that's part of the point. We're accepted in the beloved to the praise of the glory of his grace in Ephesians 1.16. We're forgiven in Christ according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1.7. We're saved by grace according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 and 8. We're made trophies through his love and the exceeding riches of his grace in Ephesians 2.7. We're exhorted to be channels of blessings to others by a consistent life so that we might minister grace to others according to Ephesians 4.29. It's great. Grace that's been given and grace that's been lavished and grace that's overflowing. So you can overflow to each other. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said, God's mercy is so great that it forgives great sins to great sinners after great lengths of time and then gives great favors and great privileges and raises us up to great enjoyments in the great heaven of the great God. I wish I could talk like that. John Bunyan said, it must be great mercy. Or no mercy. For little mercy will never serve my turn. And so it has to be abounding grace in verse 9. Abounding grace in verse 10. Abounding grace in verse 15. Abounding grace in verse 17. Abounding grace in verse 20. Because of the presence of sin and the certainty of death, you will need to be lavished and lavished and lavished with grace. Adam brings sin and death. Jesus brings grace and righteousness. Adam brings ruin and Christ brings redemption. Look at verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. How? The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. The one who sinned brought death whether you want it or whether you don't. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. In what way? The gift is welcome. The sin wasn't welcome. Death was not welcome. Grace is welcome. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. The judicial pronouncement of guilt for crime. But the free gift which came from many offenses... Don't overlook it, but the free gift which came from many offenses. Whose offenses? Your offenses. My offenses. Every single offense that's ever been committed by every single person, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Who? What else does that possibly mean? It could possibly be, mean all of the offenses that were made against Jesus. Who offended Jesus? Every sinner. In what way? Their sin? No. In what way? Their sin was so nasty and so horrible and so terrible that in light of his perfections, they decided to kill him. 
They decided to torture him. They decided to incarcerate him. They decided to abuse him. They decided to kill him. Now, I want you to think about that. Reject him, abuse him, torture him, kill him, and it results in justification for you and for me. Adam disobeys and brings death. Jesus obeys and is killed and brings life. Verse 17, for if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 18, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift comes to all men, resulting in the justification of life. Paul is going to talk about the one man's obedience in verses 19 through 21. We're going to come back just very quickly. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. That's the law of Moses That the offense might abound. What offense? The sinful offenses. But where sin abounds, grace abounded more. Much more. Jesus brings righteousness and life. Jesus brings a free and abundant grace. And by the way, the word abound is a word in the ancient language that meant a crashing wave. If you've ever been to the beach, the wave comes in, and then another wave, and then another wave, and then another wave. There was a a woman in England who had never seen the ocean in her entire life, and when she was finally brought to the ocean, she started to weep. And so the man asked her, why are you crying? And the woman said, I just never seen so much of something that there was enough for everybody. Crashing wave after wave after wave. That's what this word abound means to rise in waves. And the whole chapter is a chapter of much mores in verse 15 and verse 17 and verse 20. So, what is Paul saying? I hardly have time to cover what he's saying, but let me just give you a couple of things. The bottom line, the repenting sinner receives much more in Christ than was ever lost in Adam. And this becomes something that's so important for you. Why in Adam, everyone dies. I know, but in Jesus, everyone is made alive. Hey, in Adam, there's pain and suffering and sorrow. Yes, but in Jesus, guess what? There's life and there's love. There's redemption and there's forgiveness and there's reconciliation. But we still have to die. But Jesus promises that you'll come back to life. What is it that Satan can do? Well, he can rob, steal, and destroy. But Jesus can give life. And give it more abundantly. And everything that Satan has taken from you. And robbed you from. And stolen from you. 
The things that he's destroyed, Jesus can make well. That's the point. What was lost in Adam? Spiritual life. It's renewed in Christ. What's lost in Adam? Physical life and death. But a resurrection comes with Jesus. What was lost in Adam? The sentence and the penalty of death. And then Jesus removes the guilt and the penalty of sin. He removes the growth and the power of sin. And now you get to ask yourself the question all over again. Am I in Adam or am I in Christ? The contrast of Adam's sin and Jesus' salvation, very quickly, I just want to visit for a moment in the most simple way the contrast in comparison. Number one, Paul compares Adam's offense and Jesus' free gift. In Adam, we're condemned and die. In Jesus, the free gift of God's grace brings justification in life. Paul compares death and life. Human death reigns as king because of Adam. But now believers reign in life, spiritual life, abundant life in verse 17. Paul compares condemnation and justification. Adam's sin plunges the human race into a deserved judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes. Jesus' death brings an undeserved right standing with God. Adam hides from God. In Jesus, we're given access to God, verse 2 and in verse 18. Paul compares the disobedience of Adam with the obedience of Christ. Adam disobeys God and makes us all sinners. Jesus obeys God and by faith we're all made saints. Paul compares law and grace. God didn't give the law to Moses to save humanity. God gave the law to Moses in part to reveal that we're lawbreakers, that the knowledge of that fact would reveal sin and not conceal sin, but God's superabundance of grace would meet the demands of the law, and when Jesus died, God's grace would supply what the law could never supply. Salvation from sin, eternal life, grace, and then more grace, and then more grace. In verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus our Lord. Paul isn't simply giving a theology lesson about two opposing kingdoms. He's not giving simply a theology lesson so that you'll understand about the depravity of humanity and the wonder of salvation. Paul wants you and me to believe that we can't have allegiance to two kingdoms at exactly the same time. Paul wants you to declare yourself in Adam or in Christ not in the sense of denying your humanity he doesn't want you to pretend that you're not a human being he wants you to repudiate your relationship to sin 
And to say, that's not who I am. That's, that's who my father used to be. But in Christ, I'm a new human being. This is what Paul means when he says, if any person's in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. Enter the picture. Into the picture of our human sin and our human nature enters the law of Moses. The law reveals the extent of sin and the danger of sin and the necessity of a supernatural, abounding, free grace. Grace. And Paul presents grace like a mighty force, like a powerful presence for victorious righteousness. He knows in Adam will fall. He knows that Adam and his children will fall to sin and be enslaved to sin. He knows that we'll grow up in a world that's surrounded and swallowed by sin. And so long before he creates the universe, God prepares a lamb For the slaughter. Here's what Paul is arguing. When we sin, we endorse Adam's sin. But when we act like we are forgiven and delivered, we endorse Christ's death and resurrection. It's not hypocrisy. The devil will whisper in your ear, you're just pretending to be a saint when in fact you're a sinner. And Paul says, no, you are a saint. Really? Well, then why do I act like an idiot? No offense, it's because you are an idiot. (laughs) Here's Paul's argument. It doesn't have to be that way. You have been given faith. You have been given grace. And not just a little grace. And not just even a generous portion of grace. You have been given a super abounding grace that is that will fill up every empty spot and every dark place and empty place. If Adam could cause so much harm by the fall, how much more far-reaching and powerful is the glorious redemption that's brought by Jesus? That's his argument. Many people see themselves as hopeless slaves to sin on a collision course with death. Paul says, not true. You are in Christ. Sin no longer reigns. Grace reigns. Death no longer reigns. Life reigns. So he doesn't just simply invite you to ask the question, am I in Adam or am I in Christ? He asks you to embrace the reality that you used to be in Adam, but you're no longer in Adam, that now you are in Christ. When a person is in Adam, sin conquers. When a person is in Christ, grace conquers. With much sin comes much grace. If sin abounds, grace much more abounds. The effect of sin comes much grace. The effects of abounding grace is increased faith and increased victory. Here's Paul's argument. The effect of abounding sin is abounding failure. The effect of abounding grace is abounding faith. Abounding life. 
abounding victory. And if we're inundated with temptation, there's grace. What if I'm an idiot? There's grace. What about foolish speech? Grace. Is there, what about angry outbursts? There's grace. What about unrelenting suffering? What about loneliness? What about poverty? This isn't the grace that leaves you content with the way that you are. This is the grace that will mold you and shape you. It will define you. And it will make you something that you weren't. It'll make you a grace-filled person who relies on his grace, who lives in his grace, who loves his grace. Sin is a moral monarch and a relentless dictator. And grace is different. Grace exercises the prerogatives of a perfect ruler and then directs your life into pleasant places and fruitful fields. Roy Lauren tells the story of a man, this is a long time ago, who desperately wanted a home near the beach. And according to the story, this is Redondo Beach, by the way. According to the story, the man was broke and the man was discouraged and he decided to build his home simply from the wreckage that that washed up on shore. Can you imagine trying to build your house from all of the bits and pieces of things that float to the shore? According to the story, he built a shack and the only money that he paid was to put a lock on the front door. Lauren said, build your house, not out of the driftwood left in the wake of life's wrecks, but build it out of God's new building materials of grace. It lasts longest, wears best, and looks most beautiful. You don't have to build your life out of the bits and pieces of the wreckage that floats to shore. You have this wonderful privilege to build your life on the new, raw, building materials of everything that Jesus has provided for you. We're back to the original question, aren't we? Which will it be? In Adam? Or in Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, sometimes sin is overwhelming and sometimes death is so fearful And yet, Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who rise up and take our place in Christ. In Christ, there's freedom. In Christ, there's love. In Christ, there's forgiveness. In Christ, there's grace. Not just a little grace. And not even a sufficient grace but an all-sufficient grace, and then an all-sufficient grace that becomes an all-abounding grace so that we can live our lives in grace to the glory of God, to the majesty of Jesus. And Heavenly Father, again, we pray that this very difficult passage could be something not that we just simply logically and theologically want to tuck away in our back pocket 
but it will be a powerful message of hope that will give us the courage to live the life that you've called us to live in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's.